Good morning, Woodland Hills. So good to see all of you here that are in the house. And it's good to know that all of you guys are, who are online and listening that way are, are joining in this, this kingdom moment. I'm Greg Boyd, and uh, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at, at, at this church. Um, so last week, I'm going to just dive right in this because i got a lot to cover and only a finite amount of time to do it with. And Mary is the guardian of finite time. You don't want to mess with her, let me tell you. You don't want to mess with her. Um, so la- last few weeks, we've just been going over how God has a profound love for his creation, for the earth and the animal kingdom. He creates them out of love. He cares about their flourishing, their well-being. The Bible generally guards the earth and, and the animals as being God's property and God's pets. And we also saw that he put us, human beings who are made in the image of God, he put us in charge of that. He entrusted these this beloved property and these beloved animals to us. Their flourishing is our responsibility. So today what we thought we should do is just to step back a little bit and say, well, how are we doing on that? How are we doing on this? Um, and there's a, a lot of aspects of creation we could look at to evaluate this. I've always said that, that you know, our, our first mandate is to care for the earth and the animal kingdom. And it's, I still believe the benchmark, the best benchmark as to how we're doing it as a species. The, what, the state of the creation that we're entrusted with, uh, it is, it's, it's a reflection of ourselves. And we could look at a lot of different aspects of creation here. We only have time to look at one. And that will be this morning, we're going to look at climate change. And uh, what I uh, want to do is I'm going to set this up by just looking at this last summer. I'm going to look at, take five categories and, and just examine, like, what, what, what on this summer? Just to kind of give a, a sense of what's happening on this planet with the climate change. And then I'm going to invite my friend George Johnson up here. And uh, uh, he's a very smart guy. He's been involved in environmental science for the last 45 years. Uh, he's, got, he's gotten all these awards. He's written a book on environmental care. And... Uh, um, he wrote a doctoral dissertation named uh, Pete Moss in the Wetlands. and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's a New York Times bestseller right there with my doctoral dissertation, so I'm looking forward to hearing about that. But uh, yeah, he's got a resume that's like five, five pages long, and it's just off the charts. Um, but he's going to come up here. We're going to have a little discussion on the science behind all of this. But before I even get into talking about what's happened this last summer in terms of climate change, there's two preliminary words I'd like to share. The first is, is this. And this is like a sign of the times. Uh, But you say climate change or global warming, and and unfortunately, that has gotten caught up in the culture wars. And there's a lot of folks who, I mean, very few folks any longer completely deny climate change because it's just become so obvious. But uh, there's a lot of folks who think that, yeah, the earth may be going through a natural cycle of rising and falling temperatures, but the Democrats are exaggerating it to install fear in people, and they're trying to install fear in people because uh, that's the way you can push your agendas through. And if, if you're in that crowd that, that suspects that folks are exploiting this, this situation of the earth for their own advantage, uh, I just want to say I think that is a valid concern. I, I, I think it's a valid concern because the truth is politicians are always using fear to try to control people. Somebody say amen. Uh, it, it's never more so than today. I mean, the, the, you vote for the other side and America's going down the tubes. You know, and both sides are saying that. 
And so they use fear to control, and, and that goes back all throughout history. So that's a valid concern. And the sad thing is that because there's so much of that going on, you get to the point where when there's something that really is scary, you can't talk about it because it gets caught up in the, it's like the boy cried wolf. Oh yeah, we've heard that before. It's a valid concern, but please hear my heart. I'm not doing that. I don't care about that. I don't, I don't have an agenda. I don't have a, I'm not trying to control anybody. I'm a brother in Christ talking to other brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I'm somebody who is, is, I am really waking up to just how important it is for this role that God's given to all human beings to be caretakers of the earth and the animal kingdom. And I just want to ask the question, how are we doing? We've got to, if we're responsible for it, we've got to be able to honestly look at it. And, 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 and so please hear it from that perspective. Um, I have no interest in the political side of things here. I just am trying to say, what are the facts? We just want to, what are the facts about what's going on here? And we've got to look at that because we're responsible for the whole thing. Which leads to my second point. And that is that this is frankly alarming. Uh, last May, I was out with my friend Dwayne Polk and we we're just talking and whatever. And, and, and he says, Greg, have you ever... What do you think about climate change, global warming? And I said, oh, yeah, it's a concern, you know, kind of, yeah, it's, it's a concern. He goes, have you ever looked into it? I mean, I really looked into it, and I hadn't. I just go by what is on the news. And he says, well, you should really do that. And that kind of opened my world. I, I, I ended up spending most of this summer studying this stuff. Uh, and, and it is, I will, I'm not going to miss words, it's really alarming, very concerning. It, I think we're in far more danger than most people realize, to be honest with you. And so, as I share uh, here about what went on this summer, and then as George comes up and we talk about the science behind it, I wanted to remind us of where our ultimate hope is. You know, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, and I quote it quite a bit because it's my, one of my favorite verses, it's, it's a crazy verse, Romans 8, verses 18 and 19, where Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Because he lived with this expectation that it would happen in his lifetime, and we're supposed to live with the expectation that it will happen in our lifetime. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Right now, Paul says the whole creation groans like in labor pains to give birth to this new thing that's coming. But uh, we are to know that what God has, what's going to be revealed to us, the glory of what God has in store is, you can't even, the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to it. And the sufferings of this present age are nightmarish. And yet, We've got to remind ourselves, however chaotic things are going to get on this planet, however chaotic things are going to get in society, and they could get really bad. They already are pretty bad. But whatever's going on around us, we've got to know that this story ends spectacularly well. We either live with that hope or we don't. You know, we're either going to choose that love wins in the end, and it will be beautiful and glorious and mind-boggling, or, or this is it, and it's just a pointless, stupid, absurd deal that we're a part of here, and I choose to live in the love. And so as we're going through this, don't let your hearts be troubled. We, here's what we've got. We have to trust that the judge of the earth will do what is right. He judges justly. He judges fairly. He judges lovingly. And he's faithful, as we sang earlier. He's faithful. If he promises that it's going to end spectacularly well, you can take that to the bank. It's going to end spectacularly well. On Good Friday, it doesn't look like that, but you got to always remember Good Friday doesn't have the last word. Praise God. Because of what Jesus has done for us, Easter morning has the last word. 
Keep that in mind as we go through this. So how are we doing? How are we doing? Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to look at, at, at uh, this last summer in five categories. The first category just being we've had unprecedented heat waves and unprecedented droughts. China uh, is experiencing the most severe and longest heat wave and drought they've had in their recorded history. Maximiliano Herrera is a person who just uh, always monitors extreme weather events around the globe, said this, quote, there's nothing in climate history which is comparable to what is happening in China. The rivers are drying up all over the place. They've had 66 uh, rivers completely dry up. Uh, others are just getting to historic lows. The Yangtze River, which is the largest freshwater river in China, is, is, is down to like 20% of its, its, its actual capacity as this drought has, has continued on. Millions of people depend on that river. Uh, Europe has had uh, a similar thing, um, almost as bad. It's a the once in a 500-year heat wave and, uh, drought. Uh, France has probably been hit the worst. Uh, just in, in, average temperatures way off the charts and going on for long periods of time. But England has been hit really hard, and in, in late July, they hit 104 degrees in London. Now, that, that is wild, because their average temperature throughout the, the, the summers are usually in the 70s. I, I was over in England about 2010, or right around there, and, and, and uh, it was an August thing, and, and it got up to 87 degrees. And you would have thought that these folks were melting. I mean, they're like, this is the most oppressive heat ever. You know, they're just not used to it. 98% of the people in England do not have air conditioners because they don't usually need it. And here they hit 104, and that went on for, for, for weeks. Uh, all, all told, throughout Europe, uh, 16, over 1,600 people died of heat-related deaths. And as is the case in China, throughout Europe, we're seeing rivers running dangerously low. The Danube River, Rhine River, and they're getting so low, they're sometimes exposing these artifacts, ancient artifacts that, that, have, you know, that we haven't seen for a couple thousand years because they've been under the water. And now things are being exposed. Boats that have been sunk and, and, and whatnot. The Horn of Africa is arguably on a humanitarian level the, the hardest hit. They've had four consecutive years of extreme drought with no relief. One Analysts on the ground said that right at this moment, there's 18.4 million people that are on the brink of catastrophe. That's their word. Their cattle are dying, which means they don't have enough food. They're, they're, some of the humans are dying of starvation because their cattle are just dying. They don't, they don't have the water to, to keep them alive. Wildlife is dying like crazy. Uh, for the last... A couple decades they've been tracking this, and we're right now losing, on average, 150 to 200 species of animals a day. In, in North Africa, because of the drought, it's just killing off all, all animals all over the place. Elephants, for the first time, it's always been the case that the main cause of deaths among elephants in Kenya was poaching. But now, it's been this way for three years, the, the, the main cause of death is not poaching, it's dehydrating, dehydration. Elephants are dying from dehydration. There's this, I read this story of this lady, Ardo is her name. She's a mother of four from East Ethiopia in the middle of this drought. And she had to walk 162 miles with her four kids to find water and food. And she says in this article, she says, We have never seen a drought like this. It has affected everyone. And they've even given this, this drought, which is now going on four years, a name. And the name means never seen before. It's, 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 it's unprecedented. 
This is an area that's prone to drought, but they've never seen it to this, to this degree. The southwest United States is getting hit very hard. We are having a once-in-a-thousand-year once drought. And in some regions, they've been in a drought for almost two decades, but the whole area has now been in a drought for six years. And as a result, the Mead, Mead Lake, Lake Mead is, is, is drying up. Like that 40 to 45 million people depend on, it's now down to 27% of its, of its capacity. They've never seen it this low. The Colorado River is down to 25% of its capacity. Uh, the, the Great Salt Lake is, is down to about 20% of its capacity. I mean, all over the place. If, if you had one of these going on, that would be remarkable. But you have all these things going on at the same time, well, that's completely unprecedented. So we've had heat waves and droughts. The second category, which goes right along with it, is fires. Fires all over the place. California, it's, California's not having their worst fire season. Uh, that happened in 2020 and 2021. Both of them consecutive were the, the two worst seasons they had in terms of acreage uh, being burned. But they're having a bad year. Having, they've had over 6,300 fires so far, burning over three, 332,000 acres. Um, and it's going strong. But we're seeing fires where you don't expect to see fires. Like Siberia. When you think of Siberia, I at least always thought of it as the frozen tundra, right? You don't have forest fires up there. But you do. They've been having increasingly. The heat out there is drying off the trees, and they're having a terrible problem with fires. They've had 4,000 just this year. Last year, they set a record and ended up burning an acreage of forest that was the size of Connecticut. Siberia is on fire. Spain and France have had uh, together their, their, this last summer six times the normal uh, annual uh, amount of fires. They're having six times that. It's going crazy. crazy. The third category is flooding. And what climatologists tell us is that these extremes of flooding and, and, and drought, you, you're going to see these getting more and more intense and more and more frequent as we go into the future. Pakistan, I'm sure you heard, in August they have been just flooded. A third of that country is underwater because of monsoons and, and the, 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 the quickly melting glacial tops. Uh, they've just been inundated. and it's, it's completely thrown open. It's causing their infrastructure to collapse, their economy to collapse. It, it's just devastating. And I listened to the, the Minister of Climate Change of Pakistan, and she said, uh, we weren't prepared for this because we've never, ever seen anything like this. Who saw this coming? They have a million people now that are homeless and 33 million others that have been uh, affected by this. It's, it's just catastrophic. Uh, the United States, you guys, it's, it's been a crazy summer. Um, in the United States, we had six one-in-a-thousand-year floods. Six one-in-a-thousand-year floods. You expect to see one of these every thousand years. We had six in one month. Uh, Dallas and Death Valley in eastern Kentucky, Mississippi, southeast Illinois, and St. Louis. Now, to have one of these events is, 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 is remarkable because they only are supposed to happen once every thousand years. But to have six in one month is absolutely unheard of. And there's other places as well that are being flooded in Europe. Uh, Germany and Belgium, Bulgaria and Turkey, France, Russia, Australia, and China uh, have experienced uh, uh, unusual heavy massive flooding. And you're finding it in other places as, as well. Iran and Mozambique both were were uh, uh, area, in the areas of those they had. And, and, and notice you have droughts and, and flooding going on in the same countries. Uh, and that's what we have to come to expect, given this, the wobbling world as these extremes get more and more intense. 
uh, just Mozambique has had five years straight of, of, uh, of historic monsoons. And so it's the opposite of what they're having in other parts of the Horn of Africa, where they have four years straight of straight droughts. The fourth category has to do with the Arctic. The Arctic is heating up. And we'll talk more about this when, when George comes up. But you know, in, in uh, the early 2000s, they were saying, gosh, the Arctic is warming up twice as fast as the rest of the globe. And then around 2012, 2013, they, they revised it to say, man, it's, it's heating up three times as fast as the rest of the globe. And just last month, the IPCC came out with this report that they now estimate that the Arctic is warming up four times faster than the rest of the globe. And that is very, very concerning because, as we'll see in a little bit, the Arctic is the air conditioner of our planet. It is the thing that keeps the, the, the thing, whole thing regulated. And the final category I'll just mention is, is, is refugees, re refugee crisis. Um, when, when, when the, the United Nations uh, refugee agency said that, that now 80% of all current refu refugees come from countries that have been vulnerable to uh, this climate change. They're, they're, they have to flee because where they were at was, is just no longer inhabitable. And as always happens, when, because of the inequity of this planet, um, when disaster happens, it always affects those who have the least amount of means to respond first. It always affects the poor first, and that's what we're seeing. Uh, folks' lives are getting devastated by this. Um, it, uh, uh, so 80% of the refugees are there for climate reasons. Now, here's the thing. Climatologists, 97% agree that in all probability, these extreme weather events are going to get worse and worse at a faster and faster rate into the foreseeable future. And so if the weather's going to get worse and worse at a faster and faster rate, the refugee crisis is going to get worse and worse at a faster and faster rate. And folks, we already have a refugee crisis right now. You don't have to go any farther than our own borders to see it. Or now you can go to Martha's Vineyard in Washington and see it. We've got a, a, a crisis. But that's true all around the globe. But what's going to happen then when this is increases exponentially? And folks have nowhere to go. I mean, because we've had this, this immigration crisis going on around the globe for some time now, we're seeing xenophobia, fear of the other, lack of compassion towards the other, rising all over the globe. No one wants to take in these refugees. We've got to take care of our own. we got our own problems. We can't handle any more people. Where are these people going to go? There's already this crisis where we have thousands upon thousands in these squalling camps because they're in no man's land, because no one wants them, what's going to happen here? So there you go. Happy, happy morning. <laughs> I, I, this, I should have said it up front, but this is going to be one of the least fun messages you're ever going to hear from me. Uh, it's sobering. It's sobering. But we've got to be realistic about this. This is on us. This is our responsibility. Okay, to find out a little more about the science of it, George, would you come on up? Everyone give a warm Wooden Hills welcome to George. So good to see you, my man. Hey, thanks, thanks for being to doing this. Absolutely. So, George, um, you know, you hear people saying that. Uh, oops, <laughs> there you go. You know, I might be needing those notes at some point. Um, the, that that you know, the Earth has gone through cycles before. Yes. Uh, warming cycles and then cooling cycles. Um, couldn't could this be just that? Do do humans have anything to do with this? Um, Greg, 
It's absolutely true that Earth's climate has gone through uh, cycles down through history. My training, my background is as a geologist. I specialize in water hydrogeology, and a lot of study has been made of ice cores in Greenland uh, and Antarctica, which uh, retain a lot of those records. And yes, there are fluctuations that go in time. However, the fluctuations we are going through in the last, uh, let's say, 50 years are unprecedented. They are uh, way outside the control limits that we've seen before. So the best scientific opinion is that while some of this climate change is natural, the vast majority of the extremes are caused by human interference in the climate cycle, primarily because of our energy use. We're putting lots of carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere, which is acting as a blanket and kind of holding in the heat of the sun. And that heat is being held by the water in the oceans mm -hmm. and also by the atmosphere. Right. And that long-term change is changing the ecosystem in ways we've never seen before. Yeah, I, I read one, one account that said that we are seeing things, like these kind of changes usually in geological time happen over a hundred, hundreds of thousands of years. We're seeing it in decades. Yes. It's just, it's, and, and, and it's speeding up. So how warm has the earth gotten and how warm is it gonna get if things don't change? Um, it's somewhat difficult to infer the, the temperature across the entire Earth, the average, but uh, in the worst of the prehistoric climate changes, the Earth has probably gotten somewhere between four and six degrees centigrade warmer than it is now. Um, but that was devastating and resulted in massive extinctions of the plants and animals at that time. At the current rate we're going, we are past one degree Celsius. And again, I have to point out that scientists use Celsius, which is a little different than Fahrenheit, which most Americans use. Uh, but basically, uh, two degrees of Celsius is about equal, or one degree of Celsius is equal to two degrees Fahrenheit. So essentially right now, we're two degrees Fahrenheit over the norm. It's on track in the very short order in the next 20 years to get up to um, uh, two to three degrees. So why, you know, we're in Minnesota here and an extra two to three degrees doesn't sound so bad, especially if it cares over in the wintertime. Why is that such a big deal? Well, um, I'd like to use a, an analogy um, because the earth is a, a system that's all hooked together. We have lots of feedback loops and cross connections. And so everything is connected to everything else. And so you can think of the global warming in a way like having a, a fever in your human body. Most of us run around with a temperature around 98.6. And if we get one degree of fever, we might feel a little off, but we can still go to work and we can eat normally and, and, and it's okay. If we get two degrees of fever, we're not feeling well. We're achy, we don't have much of an appetite. You know, we, we may go to work, but we, or maybe not. But you get three degrees and you're starting to get really sick. You can't hold food down, you can't keep it in, you're sweating terribly. So in a similar way, as the Earth heats up a small amount, those feedback loops kind of work on each other and make the, the concerns and the extremes uh, greater and greater. And plants and animals have adapted to a temperature range. So what's happening, as you pointed out, is animals are going extinct and also plants. I did a lot of study on plants as well. And in fact, my uh, thesis was on plant changes in wetland areas. I heard in, it was riveting. 
Well, I was very excited, and the conclusion was that and, it's going to keep going. The, and the plants are thanking you. I, I, I don't doubt that. Well, so uh, can you explain this? this uh, you said feedback loops. Uh, talk about that. I, I, okay, it's an important concept, I think. Well, feedback uh, loops are something that most people understand intuitively. Uh, probably the best example you have in your home is a thermostat. You have a temperature gauge, which if it gets too cold, you turn it up and the temperature comes up to a level that you're comfortable at. If it gets too hot, you turn it the other way and it cools down. That's what's called negative feedback. It keeps you within control limits. What we're seeing with climate change are what are called positive feedback loops, where the change causes the change to go faster and faster. So adding more and more carbon dioxide, for example, causes the blanket around the Earth to hold sunlight in to be bigger and bigger. So you just keep wrapping yourself in a bigger and bigger blanket, and the Earth's heat cannot escape out. The temperature across the entire Earth is a balance between what comes in and what goes out. Right, right. So can you give us some examples of those feedback loops? Oh, my gosh. Um, again... Uh, like in the Arctic with the receding... Oh, well, again, the Arctic is a, is a particular thing, uh, area of concern because uh, we have water on Earth, and I'm a water scientist, and water is an almost magical chemical, biological, geological substance. Uh, life itself depends on water. Everything we do in human economy depends on water. And water is a unique substance in that it can be in three forms. It can be solid as ice, liquid as water, and gaseous as vapor. And basically, there has been a balance with the ice holding the coolness of the Earth, air conditioning, both in the Arctic and the Antarctic. We're going to talk about the Arctic because the Antarctic is a little bit different. The Arctic is underlain by water. So the water of the oceans is circulating there. And the sunlight coming in bounces off the white ice, the ice caps, goes back to Earth. Is so, that albedo effect? Yes, albedo effect, exactly. So the white reflects it back, and only a small amount is absorbed. When that ice melts and the ocean water is dark, it absorbs up to 90%. So as the ice melts and there's more and more open water, that more and more of that sunlight goes into the water. And with the Arctic, the ocean underneath is melting the ice, which is somewhat invisible. Most of our surveys of the Arctic are flyovers. They go over and they take a picture of the ice, the extent of the ice. But what's happening is underneath, the warm water is eating the ice away in submarines and tests. So it, it, the feedback loop would be that the less snow there is, the less light is reflected. The less light reflected, the more the ocean has to absorb the warmth. The more the ocean absorbs the warmth, the more snow gets melted. And it just goes on and on and on. Yes, and we seem to be reaching a point where the Arctic ice is disappearing and we're going to have what's called a blue ocean or an open ocean effect. So the Arctic Ocean will be, have, be essentially ice-free year-round, which has a lot of changes. And all of the northern uh, countries, Russia, Scandinavian countries, Canada, and the United States with Alaska, have put together some concerns because there's some massive security concerns, massive changes in the way humanity operates if the Arctic Ocean is open year-round. Right. Okay, good. So uh, how much... Uh, how much ice has, has uh, the Arctic lost in the last, let's say, 30, 40 years? Well, Greg, there have been a, lot, a number of estimates. And again, as I said, most of it's based on flyover. Based on the flyovers, it's somewhere between 60 and 80% has been lost. Um, if you look underneath it and, and factor that in, it may be closer to three-quarters to 90% of that ice is lost because it's thinning out below, and that's very hard to see from above. And... and uh, 
can you explain a little bit about the ice below is the old ice, right? Yes. The ancient ice that's usually is year-round. And then they have the seasonal stuff that's on the top. Right. But uh, uh, the way you described it, it sounds like it's primarily going after that older ice. The, the water holds a lot more heat than the air does. And that ocean water and the changes in temperature in ocean water drive the currents, the Gulf Stream and the jet stream, both the water currents and the air currents. And as there's more heat, it translates into more motion, both in the air and water. So the water currents are going underneath there and churning underneath. So then uh, what happens when there's this blue ocean event or when we have a summer where there's no ice? Uh... Um, I don't entirely know, but uh, again, the open ocean changes the dynamics. Uh, another thing, and you mentioned it in Siberia, you talk about the fires. Most of the northern hemisphere, Canada, Alaska, northern Scandinavia, Russia, have vast areas of what was called tundra, bogs or peatlands, and that's what I specialized in is peat and wetlands. And when that heats up, that starts to not only catch on fire, peat fires, which we've had here in Minnesota, can burn for years and years. You can't put them out in their remote areas. And they not only release carbon dioxide, but methane, which is an even more dangerous global warming gas. So essentially, one of the big concerns about that blue ocean is that more and more of the tundra, the wetlands will be exposed. They'll be warmed up along the fringes, and there'll be more burning. There'll be more methane and, and more that, carbon that dioxide. Feedback loop thing. And just, again, a positive feedback. Yep. It, it, the, but the, it, when you hear positive, it's not positive. It's very, no, very negative. It, it, yeah, it's just getting, it's going it means it's farther amplifying. and farther out of control limits. Yeah, so, so the more fires there are, the more carbon there is, and the more carbon there is, the hotter it gets, the hotter it gets, the more fires there are. And then that's releasing this methane, yes. which I red is like 80 times more uh, effective at trapping heat than normal uh, carbon yeah, dioxide. Yeah, it's significantly more effective when it gets in the atmosphere. Um, and again, uh, it doesn't last as long, but it's more dangerous in the short term. So carbon dioxide is there for hundreds of years. Methane is there for decades. But in, during those decades, it does a lot of damage. Okay. Is, is there any, um, I mean, this sounds pretty dire. Uh, do they have any idea of when we might be uh, hitting this blue ocean event? Um, there are a lot of estimates, and again, depending on how you define it, if it's ice out for the whole year round, uh, sometime by 2030 is an estimate. Some estimates have said sooner, 2023, 2024, 2025. Well, next year or the year after. Could be. And, and, and why is that so significant? Um, can you talk about that latent heat uh, yeah. But why is ice so important to have? <laughs> um, again, ice holds the cooling, and ice, has, ice serves as a nucleus for further cooling. So um, in the Arctic, the ice goes through a cycle. Uh, in the wintertime, when there's snow falling, it accumulates, and it, the ice gets compressed, or the snow gets compressed into ice, and that serves as a nucleus. So ice forms around ice. Ice is a crystalline uh, nucleus for more ice forming. When all of the ice is gone, it is much more difficult for water to convert to ice than for ice to convert yeah. to so more once ice. It goes, once it's gone, it's going to stay gone in all likelihood. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, I had seen this video where the person put this chunk of ice in this water and then turned the fire on and then measured the temperature of the water. As long as there's ice there, it regulated the water. The water didn't ra raise up very much. A little bit, you know, a little, you know, just a little bit. But as soon as the ice disappeared, because now, because the, 
like 98% of all the heat was being absorbed by that ice, but when the ice isn't there, then it just goes to the water. So does that mean then that when we have a blue ocean event, it's going to be more likely that the rate of warming is even going to accelerate further? Yes, that is what we would speculate. You know, Biden recently said, and in fact, the president of the IP, the International Panel on Climate Control, said that uh, this is an existential threat. Um, and of course, some people think that that, that, that means that, that this is, it poses a threat of extinction. Yeah. Um, and, and some folks have thought that that was hyperbole, like he's, 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 mm -hmm. he's saying, overstating it uh, to create fear. How do you feel about that? Well, Greg, I've, I've, in the course of my uh, training, I've studied the IPCC, which actually has been in place for 42 years. And they produced hundreds of thousands of pages of documents and tables and maps and things. And I'll try to distill that down. Um, and again, as you mentioned in, in your introduction, uh, these climatic events are happening all over the world. This is a global phenomenon. But I work also, I have an appointment at FEMA as an emergency manager. So I work on emergency events in the United States. The floods like uh, Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Katrina, floods in the Red River Valley, some of the fires out in California. And uh, what we're seeing in the United States in terms of economics is um, we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars with these disasters. And the insurance companies are noticing, they're raising their rates. And yeah. In fact, they've changed the federal law in the United States. So now all major corporations have to include a climate change risk factor in what they do. Mm -hmm. So essentially, um, again, there is a real problem there. There's no doubt about it. Is it an existential threat? There is, there is a severe threat out change. there. If things don't change, um, Yes, we could have the, what they call the sixth extension. So, now, whoa. Yeah, uh, again, I, uh, it's very speculative. There are possible solutions out there. For the last 10 years with FEMA, I've been working on adaption, mitigation, which basically means we're doing things to repair the bridges and the dams and everything. We, we acknowledge climate change is there. We're seeing it. We're building up because, as you mentioned, 100-year form, 1,000. Most of our structures in the United States are built on a 100-year standard. Yeah. And we're seeing 100-year uh, flood events happening every three to five years now. Mm, and that's probably going to So a lot of increase. your... So uh, is, there, is there anything in current science that plausibly can... We, technology we can use to slow this down and possibly reverse it? There are a lot of things going on in science. They, uh, whether they can do the whole job or not is questionable. We've shifted a lot to solar energy, which does help. We're moving away from uh, hardcore fossil fuels, coal and oil and petroleum, uh, going to wind power, tidal power, those things, but there's still a small fraction. Uh, what I found is that most Americans and most of the world does not really make a major change until they're backed into the corner. We're slowly being backed in the corner. We, we still have some options, but our options are diminishing and mm -hmm. the time is, is diminishing, so. Yeah, do we have time? If you're saying that we could have a blue ocean event by 2030 and maybe even earlier, and that it will accelerate, we, we gotta do this now. <laughs> the clock is ticking. I, I would agree that uh, the, the sooner the better, and uh, we, we, uh, I, I was glad that you included hope in your message because I, I have hope, and, and human technology has gotten us out of some very difficult situations. Uh, even uh, environmental situations in the last 50 years. But uh, again, this seems to be a very, very serious thing. And, uh, okay, so if you were, uh, 
the school teacher here, and we're all your students, <clears throat> and our job assignment was to take care of the earth and the animal kingdom. Um, what grade would you give us? Um, well, some, some students are doing pretty well, and they're getting, you know, uh, maybe B pluses. But as a species. But as a species, uh, I'm maybe in the D range. Uh, maybe You're too kind. D minus. We're flunking. Admit it, we're flunking. <laughs> All yeah, right. yeah. All right, George, hey, I appreciate that. Uh, and we're, we're going to have a, uh, a little more extensive conversation that I'll have on my site, renew.org, sometime this week. Uh, George agreed to that. We can go a little deeper into this. But hey, thank you so much for sharing this. Really appreciate it. Would you give him a warm welcome? Thank you. He's such a downer, isn't he? I mean, he's just kind of a... <laughs> Invite him to your parties. Okay, I, I want to end with, with, with this two, two other words. Um, one is this. I, I, I read a, a book this last week. It's called Power uh, by Richard uh, Heinberg. Uh, there it is right there. Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. It was an eye-opening book. I, I, it was it just, you know, it's sort of academic, so it's not everyone's cup of tea. But um, he's basically just looking at, asking the question, how did we get ourselves into this mess? And it's dire. And you just heard how dire it is. And then he asked the question, how can we get ourselves out of this mess? And um, basically his thesis is, is this, that, that what got us into this mess was greed, uh, a lust for power, power to get our way, power to control nature, you know, power to just have our best life now. And, and um, it, we had no restraints on that. And we, so we had this greed combined with a lack of care for how it impacts the earth and the animal kingdom. And we've always known that fossil fuels were a finite resource. And yet we've been, we, we, we built a perpetual growth economy on it where we have to, in our economy, always be consuming more just to keep the thing afloat. Meanwhile, the earth's resources are being diminished. And at some point, you hit a limit. And we knew that from the start, but what happens is because we, like, we enjoyed this kind of newfound energy that we got, fossil fuels and all the cool technology that we could develop with it and how convenient it made our life, we kept kicking the can down the road. Hey, someone will figure it out later on. It's just, our, our kids will figure that one out. Our grandkids will figure this one out. Well, we're, we're running out of road. And, 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 and so he says, what got us into this problem was the greed without any kind of concern for, for uh, the welfare of the earth and the animal kingdom. We just have been, we've exploited them to our own advantage. So the only thing that can get us out of this, he says, is we have got to, as a species, change and uh, move in the opposite direction. Instead of more and more and more, we've got to be thinking less and less and less. We've got to put self-restraints on ourselves, voluntarily limit our intake and, 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 and reduce our negative imprint on the planet as much as possible. And we've got to do it as a species. And he looks at all the other ways we might think we can get out of this thing. He doesn't think any of them will work. Technology, solar, it's, it's too little too late. We've got to have this massive change right now. Now he holds out hope for this. And he points to the fact that there are a number of, I mean, people are, as, as it's becoming more and more clear, and people are like realizing that this is an existential threat, um, they're, they're saying, we've got to change, and it's got to start with me. And so we've got this minimalist movement, you know, folks just like choosing voluntarily to live minimally. Uh, the zero waste movement, try to get to your, 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 your waste down to, to as close to zero as you can. Reduce everything. Reduce, reuse, 
and recycle. Reduce, reuse, and recycle, however possible. And it's going to be a voluntary thing. Um, we got the, uh, the, the sustainability movement. Live in a way that's sustainable. Our, 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 the way we've been living the last 200 years is not sustainable, and we've always known that. But we keep on doing it anyways. It's like we're addicted to this. this the, the standard of living. We've got to choose to voluntarily limit ourselves and, and, and start living in ways that are sustainable to the earth. And he points to the, there's been times in the past when people have faced existential threats, when we, like George was saying, when you really realize what's going on here, there have been times where we've denied ourselves for the good of the whole and for the good of the earth and the animal kingdom. And so what he's saying is that it's time for us to reduce, reuse, recycle, and make decisions and lifestyle choices that, that, that take consideration of the impact it has on the earth and the animal kingdom. He doesn't use this language, but it's the language I would use, and that is that we've got to learn to love the earth and the animal kingdom once again. And see, this is our mandate. It, it, here's what blows me away. Uh, Richard Heinberg is, so far as I can tell, uh, an atheist. Um, he's got nothing kind to say about religion or anything like that. He, he, he has a, his, his assessment is done strictly as a from a scientific, naturalistic, evolutionary perspective. Okay, that's, that, that, that's his grid. But even coming from that perspective, he arrives at the same point where the Bible says we should have been all along. Because our first mandate was to care about the earth and the animal kingdom. To love the earth and the animal kingdom. And what it means to love is you're willing to sacrifice for. And so he comes to the same conclusion. Uh, science once again confirms the Bible. Um, but see, th this is our mandate. We've known this all along. This is our first most foundational responsibility. And we have to confess that we have shirked it. Um, I want to encourage us as a community, and I've, I, I said this a couple weeks ago, to start a journey, to start the journey, uh, and start exploring what does it look like for you to start making choices where you deny yourself certain conveniences because it's going to be beneficial to the earth, the animal kingdom. Um, I, I don't know if I'm as optimistic as, as Richard Heinberg is that the world's going to catch on to this. I hope it does. But whether it does or not, it doesn't change our call. Uh, we're called to be motivated not by utilitarian considerations, but because this is just what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. To follow Jesus, to love the earth and the animal kingdom, to carry out our first mandate, this is what it looks like. We are all addicted to this lifestyle that we have here. The more and more and more and more. And that will kill us. If it does not change. And so what we know is that God is on the side of this movement. The Spirit of God has been trying to pull us back from this, I'm sure, the last 200 years. And really, as I'm reading you know, this book, towards the end, it's, it's almost like reading a prophet who's, who's saying, repent or die. You repent. you got to turn. Turn from your self-centered, consumeristic view of the, the earth and animal kingdom. Turn from this idea that it just exists for your pleasure. And, 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 and turn toward the truth that, that you need it and it needs you. We're in this together. He says that instead of craving this kind of power to control, we've got to start looking at cooperative power, servant power, loving power. I tell you, it sounds positively, positively biblical. Uh, not the way he says it, but when you translate it, it's, it's the same kind of concept. You know, Shelly and I have been on this, this journey for the last six months, and Shelly's been very much the driver in this, I will be happy to tell you. But it's opened up a whole world that I didn't know was there before. Um, there's millions of little tiny things you can do, little, little, little inconveniences that you can accept into your life that make a difference uh, in, in, in the, uh, the earth and the animal kingdom. Um, and and it's, it's, so it's been educational. It's actually been fun. 
And, and it really feels good. Uh, uh, it feels it, We've gone from, six months ago, we had with this trash can that was like, you know, this is your normal size, huge trash can, and we would regularly fill it every week. Just by making these little incremental steps over the last six months, we now have about one bag of, of waste every two weeks. One little bag. And our, 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 the trash thing we use is this little small thing, and we usually only have one bag in that. And I tell you, my wife, I'm sure, is committed to getting us down to one bag a month. And uh, I... Lini, when Shelly sets her mind to something, it's going to get done. I mean, this lady can get tenacious when she gets passionate, and I love her for it. It's just so great. She has this uh, a thing she does every night before she goes to sleep. She just gets on her little websites and, and, and whatnot and tries to learn what, what, what is one thing that I could do that I didn't know about before that I could do that would be beneficial to the earth and the animal kingdom. And, and, you know, maybe that's a good place to start. You've got to start with your first step. What's one thing you can do? Try to make a, look into it. Every day, try to find out one more thing you could do that would lessen your negative impact on the earth and animal kingdom. Because um, this is our calling. This is our mandate. This is the direction the Spirit of God is, is moving. Uh, and we hope others will get on board. The church should have been leading this charge for the last 200 years. But, well, we are where we are, and we're here now, and so we start now. The second thing I'll say, and I'll do it in 60 seconds, and that is remember where your real hope is. I hope the world gets on board and, and we can turn this thing around. Um, but but uh, whether or not that's the case, our ultimate hope is not in this present world order. Our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. This world in its current form will pass away. Our bodies in this current form will pass away sooner or later. We don't know when. But uh, it will give birth to the new heavens and the new earth and our new transformed bodies. And the kingdom of God will be established forever and ever and ever, praise God. And then the creation will display the beauty that God always wanted it to display. That is our ultimate hope. The sufferings of this present age, however crazy it gets you guys, and it's only going to get crazier and crazier so far as we can see. Uh, unless God intervenes and does something miraculous. But no matter whatever's happening, remember the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Praise God. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right. Don't forget, uh, we have the MuseCast on Tuesdays, and we have our gathering groups. I hear such great things about our gathering groups. Uh, encourage folks to participate in that. We've got prayer available right now uh, online and also up front here. If you have anything that you could use prayer for, we encourage you to uh, get prayer for that. Uh, and if you're going to be here next week on site and you have kiddos with you, let us know so that we can have enough uh, uh, children's workers back there to be taking care of them. And, and, and really think about uh, sacrificially giving to this, this campaign that we have to, have to, to improve our food shelf, to serve, better serve our community. Because at the end of the day, folks, isn't that what it's all about? Servant love towards everyone around us. Let's go out and love God, love your neighbor as yourself, and love the earth and the animal kingdom in Jesus' name. Love you guys. God bless.